Welcome, Watchmen. I am the Paladin Preacher with Peleus Men's Ministry. Let's jump into tonight's topic. Are you ready? Let's begin. Hey guys, Paladin Preacher here. Tonight we're going to be talking about a few different things. First of all, we're going to be talking about the Shivington Massacre. We're going to be talking about cultural movements and how popular beliefs can often lead to fear and hysteria and how that fear can be used as a tool to sway ideology. In 1849, at the discovery of gold in California, mass settlers drove across the Great Plains in search for riches and a better life. When the U.S. government realized the mass of settlers moving through the Great Plains and traveling through territory occupied by Native American tribes, the government decided it would be in their best interest and the interest of the settlers to cut a deal with the Native tribes to ensure that they would limit or prevent harassment of new settlers traveling through the lands and allow safe passage for the settlers, especially going through high-risk areas. The government held a gathering at Fort Laramie in Wyoming, and you can still visit that fort to this day because it was an important historical stop on the Oregon, California, and Mormon trails, and it was a staging point for various military excursions and treaty signings. In 1851, many of the Great Plains tribal chiefs were convinced by the U.S. government to sign a treaty to protect the settlers and allow safe passage through the tribal lands. The agreement allowed safe passage through the lands with the conditions that the settlers would not stop or attempt to seize lands that belonged to tribes. The problem began through the good intentions of the treaty signing. The good intentions were peace, safety, and safe passage. However, a vast number of tribes did not sign the treaty and therefore did not agree to such terms and conditions. The settlers, as they began to travel through the plains now that the treaty had been signed, were driving away migratory animals, buffalo and bison, bison, which was a staple of many of the Great Plains tribes. The settlers were disturbing the lands and using up natural resources and contaminating water sources. They also brought with them new diseases from the east, which ended up killing large swaths of native population through the contact of settlers. Gold was discovered in the winter of 1858 to 1859 in Colorado, which lay upon the portion of the tribal lands acknowledged as a no-go area for settlers due to the treaty agreement that was signed in 1851. However, because it was still a no-go area, settlers were driven there by the prospect of new gold to strike it rich, and therefore they began flooding the area in search for gold, all the while unregulated and therefore breaking the treaty conditions set forth by not settling on tribal lands. The lands that were given to the Native American tribes expanded between modern-day eastern Colorado, western Kansas, southeastern Wyoming, and southwestern Nebraska. These lands were designated as Cheyenne and Arapaho lands. Modern cities like Boulder and Denver, Denver, Colorado, began as mining camps because 
of the gold that was found in the surrounding area. The root of the problem began as the taking of tribal lands by the increasing amount of settlers in the area, breaching the original treaty the U.S. government insisted upon. Thus began a systematic problem of retaliation between settlers and tribal people. They began as small, isolated incidents, but over time, the frequency and aggress aggressive nature of the retaliations between native lands, native tribes, and settlers started the slow boil which would eventually reach a critical point. The U.S. government was aware of this settling of the tribal lands, and yet there was no plan prepared to alleviate the problem and equip the people on either side to coexist with one another. In 1861, this new influx of settlers in Colorado put pressure on the government to find a way to extract more tribal lands and thus providing more safety for the settlers, as well as increase their likelihood of finding more natural resources through the settlers who were essentially on the front lines of excavating what the government was not able to do. So in a sense, there was an unspoken agreement between the settlers and the government for the settlers to act as contracted prospectors. Once the natural resources were provided or discovered, it provided incentive for the government to increase the lands and acquire those areas. In 1861, the Commissioner of Indian Affairs, which was the government office overseeing the relationships between the Indian tribes and settlers, was sent to negotiate a revised treaty. This new treaty was signed at Fort Wise in 1861 and was a treaty entered into by the United States and six chiefs of the Southern Cheyenne and four of the Southern Arapaho Indian tribes. These chiefs were convinced to give up most of their lands and that had now been taken over by the settlers. Now this was 90% of their lands that they were relinquishing and were accepting terms to settle on a reserve in eastern Colorado, now allowing these settlers to take over their lands. Most of the uh, Indian chiefs understood that they were signing a treaty for peace, but they didn't know that the condition of the peace was to give up their lands. So many of the other tribes who did not sign the treaty were out of their minds that the few tribes that had made a blanket agreement with the U.S. government were giving up their lands without their being acknowledged or being party to the negotiations. The treaty was never approved by the Council of 44. And the Council of 44 was a traditional Cheyenne society and was organized into 10 major bands of governed uh, tribes by a council of 44 chiefs and seven military societies. The most uh, powerful and most um, well-known of these tribes were the dog soldiers, and they were a more aggressive and, and powerful militant group uh, among the tribes. So as the Cheyenne and Arapaho nations refused to abide by the terms of the new treaty, that was signed at Fort Wise, because of how slanted and sacrificial it was, uh, the settlers in the U.S. government said that because the treaty was signed and completed, that the government now had legal ability to take the lands from the tribes and allow settlers to establish wherever they pleased. Now you might be wondering what else was happening during this time between 1859 and 1861. 
Well, I got a few dates here and of some events that were occurring to kind of give some context of what was going on across the nation and within government. And so that way you can understand how chaotic it was during this time and how we will see later on as we, as we move forward that individuals were capitalizing on the chaos that was happening within the country and using that as a way to work around the system and find ways to establish um, uh, establish uh, political power and uh, expansion of United States territories due to all these moving parts happening at the same time. So January 3rd, 1861, the American Civil War starts and Delaware votes not to secede from the Union. On January 9th, Mississippi became the second state to secede from the Union. On January 10th, Florida seceded from the Union. On January 11th, Alabama seceded from the Union. On January 12th, Florida state troops demanded the surrender of Fort Pickens. On January 18th, Georgia seceded from the Union. January 21st, Jefferson Davis resigns from the United States Senate and the Ordinance of Secession is ratified. On January 26th, Louisiana seceded from the Union. January 29th, Kansas was admitted as the 34th state in the, in the United States. February 1st, Texas seceded from the Union. On February 4th, delegates from six seceded states meet at the Montgomery Convention in Montgomery, Alabama. So imagine this is all happening within weeks. You've got states that are just falling off. They're seceding from the Union. Civil War has broken out. Now, on February 8th, the Confederate States of America adopt the Provisional Confederate States of Constitu States Constitution. So now you have all these states that have seceded from the Union. They've now become a Confederate States. On February 9th, Jefferson Davis was elected as the Provisional President of the Confederate States of America by the Weed Convention in Montgomery, Alabama. So now you have a unified secession of states. On February 11th, the U.S. House unanimously passes a resolution guaranteeing non-interference with slavery in any state. So now, now between January and February, you have the, the, the states that seceded from the Union, the unification of these states, and the issue of slavery that's coming about. On February 23rd, President-elect Abraham Lincoln arrives secretly in Washington, D.C. after an assassination attempt in Baltimore. On February 28th, the Colorado Territory is organized. On March 2nd, the Nevada Territory and Dakota Territory is organized. And on March 4th, Abraham Lincoln is sworn in as the 16th President of the United States. And on March 11th, the Confederate States Constitution is adopted. So within three months, chaos is ensuing the United States of America. Between the Civil War, the seceding of the, of the states from the Union, the slavery issue that was boil, coming to a boiling point, 
you have an assassination attempt on a president-elect, and you have a changing of the guard because you have one president stepping down and you have a new president stepping in. All of these things were taking place in the East, and what happened was that the politicians in Washington, especially James Buchanan, took advantage of the chaos that was ensuing between the war effort, states leaving the Union, slavery, and an assassination attempt on President Lincoln's life to acquire 90% of the Great Plains territories before uh, James Buchanan was removed from office. We read prior that both Colorado, Nevada, and Dakota territories were being organized into the American territories in the beginning of 1861. So in a sense, the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing before it was too late. And by then, what's done is already done. James Buchanan's plan had already taken place. And now Abraham Lincoln is stepping in to an environment where he's just trying to manage what he possibly can and what's most urgent. And what's most urgent is the Civil War and what's happening directly between on the eastern seaboard of the, of the United States. The expansion of territories was definitely not on their high priority list, and a lot of these things that had been put in place had already been uh, coming to fruition by the time Abraham Lincoln was coming to office. So the tension began increasing in 1863 because not enough provisions were given uh, to the Indian tribes when all the best lands were taken and the settlers were butted up against the Indian tribes. The tension began increasing in 1863, and the rubbing and the friction began to turn into a slow burn and sparks that were exacerbated by the starvation of the Indian tribes and the, the taking advantage by new settlers. So you have settlers living right up against Indian tribes. You have the settlers that are taking their, their crops, they're taking their livestock, they're uh, taking all the natural resources. And a lot of these tribes were literally starving to death because they couldn't feed their own tribes due to the lack of resources. Now, due to the way it was structured, if tribal members were found outside the reservation boundaries, they were freely allowed to be attacked or ransacked, and thus placing additional fuel to the potential explosion of the friction, which continued at such a frequent and alarming rate. In 1864, government contractors contracted to provide beef to the United States military for the Civil War effort, claim that unidentified Indians attacked and stole their cattle. The local tribes denied the allegation, and some historians believe that it's possible that some of the herders lost the heads of cattle and decided to blame the shortage on the local Indian tribes so that they would be made whole by the government for their carelessness. This was not an uncommon tactic for settlers or government contractors to claim, knowing they had a high likelihood of being made whole or salvaged potential losses from a, that would occur throughout the territories. The reality is no one really knows what happened, but here's what we do know. We do know that this was an event which triggered the first of two major hostilities against the settlers and Indian tribes living in this part of the territories. 
Some historians point to the skirmish at Freeman's Orchard as the beginning of the 1864 Indian War in the Colorado Territory. While the incident was foreshadowing things to come, hostilities between Union soldiers and the native tribes had in reality been brewing ever since the 1862 Sioux Uprising in Minnesota. So now, by 18, April 1864, a full-scale war was inevitable, and many peaceful tribes and settlers would soon pay with their deaths. The incident at Fremont's Orchard in April 12, 1864, remains a subject of controversy for both the Union soldiers and the tribes involved as to who initiated the fighting. Fremont's Orchard was located a few miles north of Denver, Colorado, the mining camp, and southeast of Camp Collins in the Colorado Territory. The official records of the Union and Confederate armies in a book compilation called The War of the Rebellion, a compilation of the official records of the Union and Confederate armies, Series 1, Volume 35, Part 1. These are documented uh, correspondence from military personnel during this time at Fremont's Orchard on April 12, 1864. So I'm just going to go ahead and read the report, and this is coming directly from the, uh, the correspondence. Camp Sanborn, April 12, 1864. Sir, receiving information from W.D. Ripley of the Bijou that the Indians have been taking stock and committing depredations on the ranchmen on that creek. I this morning sent Lieutenant Dunn with 40 men of companies H and C to recover the stock, also to take from them their firearms, he's talking about the Indians, and bring the depredators to this camp. This evening an expressman arrived from Lieutenant Dunn, who states that after a hard ride they came up on the party of some 15 or 20 Indians, who, on seeing the soldiers approach, drew up a line of battle and made all preparations for a fight, but finally sent forward one of their party to shake hands and at the same time began to drive their stock back into the bluffs. He's talking about the livestock. They soon all came up and wished to shake hands. Lieutenant Dunn then demanded the stock and the commenced disarming of the Indians. When they turned and ran, they turned and fired back at the soldiers, wounding four of Lieutenant Dunn's party, two mortally and two severely. Lieutenant Dunn had previously divided his party, sending a part of them across the country to intercept the Indians, and at the time of the skirmish had with him but 15 men. This much I have learned from the messenger verbally. And the correspondence continues here, and it says, The skirmish occurred on the north side of the Platte, three miles below Fremont's Orchard. The Indians were going north. It will be well to telegraph to Laramie that they will be they may be ready for this may be the signal of the uprising excuse my suggestion we'll send an expressman with further news as we get it lieutenant dunn has just arrived and reports that none of the men were killed several of the indians were seen to fall from their horses but being freshly mounted succeeded in getting away from them as the horses ridden by Lieutenant Dunn's men were tired by their long hunt after the Indians, traveling nearly 80 miles, Lieutenants Dunn and Chase will proceed in the morning on their trail. 
I have sent for Jerry to act as guide, also to McWade to hurry forward our arms. These Indians were armed with rifle, a Colt revolver, and bows and arrows each, and were evidently on the warpath, as they did not talk anything but fight. Send down at least 8,000 more cartridges of carbines for this command. Major Downing was here when the information was received and fully concurs in the action taken. I am, sir, in haste yours, respectfully. George L. Sanborn, Captain, 1st Colorado Cavalry, Commanding. Colonel John M. Chivington, Commanding District of Colorado. P.S. Lieutenant Dunn says they represented themselves, the Indians, he's referring to, to be Cheyennes. They also had carbine pistols. End quote. And here's something from, uh, it's a second report and a, an additional correspondence from uh, Camp, Camp Sanborn. This one is dated April 18th, 1864. And it says, quote, In pursuance of special orders, numbers nine, dated headquarters Camp Sanborn, April 12th, 1864, to take from the Indians stock consisting of horses stolen by them from ranchmen in the vicinity of Camp Sanborn, started at daylight, crossing the Platte, dividing my command, and searching the bluffs on the south side a greater part of the day, till about 3 p.m. I discovered their trail running in northwesterly direction toward the Platte River, when, about 4 p.m., on coming out of the sand hills, I discovered the Indians on the north side of the river, evidently intending to steal a herd of horses and mules grazing near Fremont's orchard, which belonged to the quartermaster at Denver. Though during the day my command had marched about 75 miles over the sandy hills, deep ravines, and most of the time without water, the whole country began, the whole country being an arid waste, I immediately ordered the gallop and soon intercepted them from the herd, when, upon approaching them, I discovered a herd of horses, which they detached men to drive into the sand hills toward the north, and placed themselves in a threatening attitude. When near enough to speak to them, Mr. Ripley, a ranchman, who had lost all the, all the livestock he had, and who had informed us of their depredations, said that they were the Indians, and pointing to the herd, said there was his stock. Feeling the great responsibility that was resting upon me, and not desiring to bring about an Indian was, was by being the, at, excuse me, feeling the great responsibility that was resting upon me, and not desiring to bring about an Indian was by being the first aggressor. I dismounted and walked toward to meet their chief, and tried to obtain the stock without any resort to violence. After requesting the chief to return the stock, who replied only by a scornful laugh, I told him I would be compelled to disarm his party, at the same time reaching forward as if to take the arms from one of the Indians when they immediately commenced firing. I ordered my men to return the fire, and after a short time they fled, and I pursued them about 15 miles, when, finding my horse would soon be the, be the worthless Finding that my horse would soon be worthless in the pursuit, I started toward Camp Sanborn, which I reached toward midnight. When obtaining fresh horses and Mr. Jerry for a guide, 
whose experience for 25 years with the Indians we deemed invaluable, I started again at daylight, following the trail till about noon, when it commenced storming violently, snowing and blowing, till the hills appeared to be wrapped in one volume of dust, I still pursued the trail. Though before the storm it had become almost obliterated, it now soon became totally so, when being unable to discover any further indication of their course, by the advice of my guide I turned toward about the sunset and reached camp before daylight the next morning. The quote continues on, My command with me and engaged in the skirmish with the Indians numbered only 15 men, of whom four were wounded, two mortally and two severely. My men were armed with the Whitney pistol, caliber 36, and sabers. The Indians were about 25 strong when the skirmish commenced and were reinforced by about 20 more. They were all well armed with rifles, navy and dragoon pistols, and the carbine pistol carrying an ounce ball besides their bows and arrows. My men during the engagement behaved with great coolness and and evinced the degree of courage deserving more than ordinary credit. If my horses had been fresh, I am confident that this band would never again have troubled the settlers in the vicinity. I have not yet been able to learn what tribe these Indians belong, though their lances, shields, bows, and arrows, which were left upon the field, are said by those most intimate with the Indians' character to be such as are used by the Cheyennes though their peculiar method of traveling is not at all like them. We omitted to mention that we killed some eight or ten of the Indians and wounded about twelve or fifteen more. Very respectfully, your obedient servant, Clark Dunn, Second Lieutenant, First Colorado Cavalry, Commanding Detach. So we heard two individual correspondents from two separate individuals that were at the incident that took place. So we see their perspective. So now let's go ahead and take the perspective of the tribal leaders of the Cheyenne. So a group of the Cheyenne warrior tribes called the Dog Soldiers were on their way to a raid of their tribal enemy, the Crow tribe. And on their way, they found four stray mules. That night, a white settler approached the Dog Soldiers camp and said that those were his mules. The Cheyenne said, sure, we'll return them, but you must give us a gift for having found them for you. The settler refused to give a gift, and upon not being able to acquire his alleged stolen mules, the settler approached his grievances to the Union soldiers stationed at Camp Collins. Dunn demanded that the mules be given back. Dunn's biggest mistake was trying to disarm the tribes by taking their rifles, pistols, and native weapons away. This, in the perspective of the tribe, was interpreted as an act of aggression that the military would come in and immediately try to disarm them. There were rumors and fake reports being circulated by telegraph and print media outlets around the territory and throughout the Americas that these same dog soldiers attacked and killed the rancher who allegedly had his mule stolen. But under further investigation, they, they came to the conclusion that there was no evidence to support these allegations. These news outlets and rumor, rumor spreading was, creating to, was created to stir up excitement and hysteria 
to eventually gain enough political and popular public opinion to eventually pave the way for the Chivington Massacre. So now enters John Evans. And I'll tell you a little bit about his background and how he plays an important role in this scenario. So John Evans was born March 9, 1814 in Waynesville, Ohio. He was the governor of the Colorado Territory from 1862 to 65. He was the founder of Northwestern University. He was a physician and a railroad promoter. <clears throat> he was a graduate of Lynn Medical College in Cincinnati, Ohio, and he graduated in 1838. Evans practiced medicine in Indiana, where he helped establish a state hospital for the insane and served as its first superintendent between 1845 and 1848. While serving as a professor of obstetrics at Rush Medical College in Chicago in 1848, he and Orrington Lunt founded Northwestern University in 1851. He went to the Colorado Territory and became its second governor in 1862. In 1864, he founded the, the Colorado Seminary, which was a Methodist seminary, which later became the University of Denver. The Denver Pacific, South Park, and Denver and New Orleans Railways were organized and partly financed by, by Evans. In Colorado, Governor Evans warned that all peaceful Indians in the region must report to the Sand Creek Reservation or risk being attacked, creating the conditions that will lead to the infamous Sand Creek Massacre. Evans offered was sanctuary, but it was half-hearted. His primary goal in 1864 was to eliminate all Native American activity in eastern Colorado, an accomplishment he hoped would increase his popularity and eventually win him a U.S. Senate seat. Immediately after ordering the peaceful Indians to the reservation, Evans issued a second proclamation that invited white settlers to indiscriminately, quote, kill and destroy all hostile Indians, end quote. At the same time, Evans began creating a temporary 100-day militia force to wage war on the Indians. He placed the new regiment under the command of Colonel John Chivington, another ambitious man who hoped to gain high political office by fighting Indians. The Sioux and the Cheyenne and Arapaho Indians of eastern Colorado were unaware of these dupl duplicitous political maneuverings. Although some bands had violently resisted white settlers in years past, by the autumn of 1864, many Indians were becoming more receptive to Cheyenne Chief Black Kettle's argument that they must make peace. Black Kettle had recently returned from a visit to Washington, D.C., where President Abraham Lincoln had given him a huge American flag, which Black Kettle was very proud of. He had seen a vast number of white people and their powerful machines, the Indians, Black Kettle argued, must make peace or they would be crushed by the, by the men from the east. When word of Governor Evans's June 24th offering of sanctuary reached the Indians, however, most of the Indians remained distrustful and were w unwilling to give up the fight. Only Black Kettle and a few lesser chiefs took Evans up on his offer for amnesty. In truth, Evans and Shivington were reluctant to see hostilities further abate before they had won a glorious victory. 
but they grudgingly promised Black Kettle his people would be safe if they came to Fort Lyon in eastern Colorado. In November 1864, the Indians reported to the fort as requested. Major Edward Wincup, the commanding federal officer, told Black Kettle to settle his band about 40 miles away on Sand Creek, where he promised they would be safe. Wincup, however, could not control John Shivington. And by November, day the 100-day uh, enlistment of militia soldiers in Colorado was nearly fully trained, and Shivington had seen no action yet. His political stock was rapidly falling, and he seemed to have become almost insane in his desire to kill Indians. Quote, I long to be waiting in gore, end quote. He said, he is said to have proclaimed at a dinner party. In his demented state, Shivington apparently concluded that it did not matter whether he killed peaceful or hostile Indians. In his mind, Black Kettle's village on Sand Creek became a legitimate and easy target. At daybreak on November 29, 1864, Shivington led 700 men, many of them were drunk, in a savage assault on Black Kettle's peaceful village. Most of the Cheyenne warriors were away hunting. In the awful hours that followed, Shivington and his men brutally slaughtered 105 women and children and killed 28 men in the camp. The soldiers scalped and mutilated the corpses, carrying body parts back to display in Denver as trophies. Amazingly, Black Kettle and a number of other Cheyenne managed to escape. So these Indian tribes were brought to Sand Creek based on the premise of giving up their, the, almost the entirety of their lands, relinquishing all of their weapons, and establishing a place to live on a reservation 40 miles outside of the fort with the promise of safety. And because of that, they were exterminated. In the following months, the nation learned of Chivington's treachery at Sand Creek. And many Americans reacted with horror and disgust. By then, Chivington and his soldiers had left the military and were beyond reach of court-martial. Chivington's political ambitions were ruined, however, and he spent the rest of his life wandering in the West. The scandal over Sand Creek also forced Evans to resign and dashed his hopes of holding political office. <clears throat> Evans did, however, go on to be successful and have a lucrative career building and operating the Colorado Railroads. 
you might be asking and wondering, what does this have to do with anything? So here are the four points I have. Number one, fear and hysteria lead to life-changing decisions. Number two, we are witnessing this similar sort of hysteria and cultural public opinion being shoved down our throats by the mainstream media and the radical political parties and politicians. Number three, the push for gun control in America is being fueled by fear, hatred, and the capitalization of shootings in public places. And number four, ultimately, it is my view that these same tactics used by individuals like John Evans to strip and exterminate the Cheyenne and Arapaho tribes during the Sand Creek Massacre could be the same tactics used to disarm law-abiding citizens across the country and ultimately strip Americans of their individual freedoms and freedom of religion. Mark my words, if the weapons we have now are successively stripped from us just like they were stripped from the Cheyenne and Arapaho tribes, the next phase of the plan will in fact be stripping people of their freedoms of speech and religion for the sake of a more, quote, peaceful society and the promise of protection. The very same promise made to these tribes at Sand Creek And because of Sand Creek, we can now be aware of something within our culture that can generate increasing friction among people groups, especially in people groups that have differences of opinion. Rumors can be spread to increase popular opinion of events and percolate individuals seeking to better their political aims to the point where they are actively seeking the appropriate opportunity to assimilate their version of a worldview to the rest of society and actively engage in stripping the land and rights away from individuals who have come into that people group's crosshairs. We've reached a point in our American society that has friction at every edge. Whether it is the right to keep and bear arms, the freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, the right for our viewpoints to be heard, and the right to worship Jesus Christ. Just by publishing this podcast, I'm putting a target on my back by those who have a different viewpoint, especially on the radicalized sides. We have to realize that we are seeing firsthand the effects of fake news, outrage culture, gender and sexual identification and qualification, and the right to have a differing viewpoint in social media. But if you decide to share that viewpoint openly, you are attacked, verbally or sometimes physically, and in most cases labeled as a bigot, a racist, homophobic, a conspiracy theorist, or a radical. So here's where I think we are today. So the Pew Research Center ran uh, some polls to see what the perception of the church and, and faith are in our culture today. So I just want to read through some of the stats for you 
just to give you some context as to why I think there's some parallels here and why I think this is relatable. So perceptions of church culture today, as surveyed by the Pew Research Forum, state that 60% of Christians in the United States believe that all roads lead to God or to heaven. That Christianity as a faith really doesn't impact their lives and that Christianity is extreme. Ideas that are extreme should, by, should be diluted for a modern society. Perceptions of the general population say that 46% of, re- of people say that religion is part of the problem in the world today. 42% of people in the Christian faith are the reason for the problems in our cultural issues, including women's rights, same-sex marriage, abortion, guns, and violence. 89% say you should not criticize someone else's life choices. 70% say any sexual contact between consenting adults Meeting the minimum state requirements should be okay. So we're now seeing a cultural shift. And in a chaotic environment, we pretend like things happen around the world that don't affect us personally. We're craving entertainment and want to be amused. An interesting book called Amusing Ourselves to Death, Public Discourse in an Age of of Show Business by Neil Postman is definitely a a good read, and I would highly suggest that because he talks in depth about what it means to have a craving for this type of entertainment as a culture. We're failing institutional trust in our government, political parties, our churches, our educational system, and news outlets. The objective fact-based arguments are less weighty than emotion and personal beliefs with an inability to see two sides to any issue or the ability to discuss anything forthright. We take diametrically opposed sides with no room for being moderate in our beliefs or thinking. Our morality is primarily decided based on what feels good or what feels right to the individual. We know feelings are real, they're just not reliable. Because a majority of the time, you can't trust your feelings, even if it feels right. We struggle with virtue signaling. We live in an era of of social media and human interaction, which puts more importance on the idea of looking like you care than actually putting words into action that physically helps one another. I remember when the shooting the terrorist attack in France happened and everyone was changing their Facebook profile photo to a picture of the French flag overlaid over their profile photo as a, as a symbol of standing with France. I mean, I get that that is an expression of, of how you feel and the sadness that you feel, but creating a movement to change your profile photo doesn't help anyone, at least not directly. You're not funding someone's hospital bill or going and sitting and praying with a family who just had their loved one shot to death. Changing your profile photo is just about the, the bare minimum you could possibly do so that way you can do it and everybody around you thinks that you are a good person 
and that you you know you care. We'd prefer to click a button to help someone than actually sitting down one on one and helping people deal with with the struggles that they have and help them heal through the power of the Holy Spirit and through the power of community. Recently, we had uh, the uh, California Assembly Bill 1884 pass, and it was the, the single-use plastic straws. Now, you can imagine headlines like California bans restaurants from automatically giving out plastic straws or a bipartisan victory, California's new straw law, or banning straws, a win for the environmentalists. I mean, all of that stuff. It started with viral videos of marine life with straws wedged in their nostrils. And it was this, this type of media was pushed by groups like Stop Sucking and The Ocean Conservancy and were picked up like sites like Tree Hugger and BuzzFeed and, and The Dodo. The gut public response was that all the plastic straws had to be banned from the face of the earth because the marine life was at stake. And if we, if we could just ban the straws, that marine life wouldn't be suffering for the sake of having a frappuccino or a, a drink at a, at a fast food restaurant. The movement that ensued was a push to ban single-use plastic straws and the growing list of companies like 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 uh, Starbucks and and Hyatt were dropping the straws, while Seattle and Vancouver, San Francisco and New York City, and many other major cities uh, were banning these plastic straws as a as a way to show that they were environmentally friendly and that they were getting behind the movement. Then, with the straws that were left. We took plastic straws, replaced them with renewably sourced material straws, a.k.a. paper straws. But then we put them in plastic sleeves to keep the structural integrity of the paper straw intact. I don't know how that makes sense. We, re we literally replaced a plastic straw with a paper wrapper for a paper straw with a plastic wrapper. I mean, if you really think about it, if we were going to ban plastic straws, we should have banned all the plastic silverware that you get at restaurants, all the plastic lid cups that you get for your, your paper cups. I mean, if you're going to ban one, you've got to ban them all. Otherwise, what's the point? All it was is to make somebody feel good that they were doing something, quote-unquote, environmentally friendly. When in reality, it, it basically did, I, I want to say it did pretty much nothing. But what do I know? One of the other major issues we're dealing with is the outrage mentality. Quote, for a frightening number of people, the art of being offended by everything, or even better, 
loudly and publicly complaining about being offended by everything, is pursued with alarming dedication. For some, being offended is practically a credo and an all-encompassing way of life, end quote. And that was from Heather Wilhelm, and it was a commentary called The Last Gasps of American Outrage Culture. I think I love that quote. It's phenomenal. And then I took this. It was a Urban Dictionary is always my favorite. You get the best, best little tidbits there. But this was their top definition for outrage culture. This is what, what it was according to UrbanDictionary.com. Outrage culture. When people play the victim card and bend over backwards to be as offended as possible when they really aren't. Using hissy fits, political correctness, character assassination, and a false sense of moral authority, the outrager hopes to gain power and public recognition over their brave act of justice, as well as a sense of control over their meaningless existence, often accompanied by demands for financial compensation for their, quote, pain and suffering, end quote. And then down below, they have a sentence uh, using the term outrage culture. I'll read those for you, too. It says, quote, why do we have warning labels that say contains peanuts on peanut jars and contains milk on milk cartons? Can we just go back to using common sense instead of having a, lit- a lit- litigate in, uh, sorry, can we just go back to using common sense instead of having to litigate everything in fear of lawsuits? We only have the outrage culture to blame, it says. And then the hashtags for outrage culture were hashtag douchebaggery, hashtag playing the victim, hashtag victim complex, uh, victimocracy, litigation, moral bankruptcy, <laughs> And then my favorite hashtag, nanny state. So continuing on with, with other issues we're currently dealing with in our culture. So we have a war on free speech and, and defining what hate speech is. So the issue of what free speech is, uh, this is a quote from uh, uh, Open Democracy. The issue of what is free speech has become heated and controversial with claims and counterclaims on what people have the right to say and shouldn't say, and who can say it. This can be seen across the UK and West from the rise of, quote, no platforming, quote, end quote, at universities to the emergence of pseudo-offense and challenge as in the recent Peter Tatchell case. I'm, I'm not familiar with that, but, and the definition of a hate crime into a hate thought. So we've got hate crimes and hate thoughts. In the, in the legislation, such as offensive behavior at football and threatening communications, all of these are connected, and there is a visible authoritarianism in public life, evident in the actions of governments, a systematic curtailment of civil, civil liberties, and gathering encroachments of the surveillance state in places where there are highly sensitive attitudes about language, shaped by what groups can appropriate certain words, end quote. We're dealing with microaggressions and the rise of victimization 
Instead of exercising covert avoidance and quietly cutting off relations with an offender without a confrontation, or the conceptualize the or conceptualize the problem as a disruption to their relationship and seek only to restore harmony without passing judgment for offenses like theft, assault, or breach of contract, people in dignity culture will use law without shame. However, in a new culture era of victimization, the offended parties will take the internet take to the internet and publicly shame or humiliate the quote harming end quote party, hoping to provoke enough sympathy from social media community and to antagonize their following base of backers. Sociologists Bradley Campbell and Jason Manning commented that the increasingly common approach in our culture to handling conflict by saying, it isn't our culture. Honorable people are sensitive to insult, and so they will be understood that microaggressions, even if unintentional, are severe offenses that demand a serious response. They write, but honor cultures value unilateral aggressions and disparage appeals for help. Public complaints that advertise or even exaggerate one's own victimization and need for sympathy would be an anathema, anathema to a person of honor. But neither is it dignity culture. Members of dignity culture, on the other hand, would see no shame in appealing to third parties, but they would not approve of such appeals for minor or merely verbal offenses. Instead, they would likely counsel their confronting offender directly and discuss the issue, or better yet, ignoring the remarks altogether. The culture on display on many colleges and university campuses, by way of contrast, is, quote, characterized by concern with status and sensitivity to slight combined combination with a heavy reliance on third parties. People are intolerant of insults, even if unintentional, and react by bringing them to the attention of authorities or to the public at large. Domination is the main form of deviance, and the victimization way of attacking, of attracting sympathy, so rather the emphasis either their strengthen, to strengthen or, or, or empower their inner worth. The aggrieved emphasizes their oppression and social marginalization. It is, as they say, a victimhood culture. And that was a quote taken from the Atlantic when they were talking about this new rise in, in, uh, in victim culture that's neither a dignity culture nor is it an honor culture. But we've kind of fallen into this weird rut of you can't say anything you want, but if you, you want to express yourself and you offend someone, then you are automatically supposed to apologize, but also be shamed as a punishment. And it has to be done publicly and done through social media. It's very, very strange. I mean, we're also seeing a continual rise of these social justice warriors, and it's loosely defined as a person who uses the fight for civil rights as an excuse to be either rude or condescending and sometimes violent for the purposes of relieving their frustrations or validating their sense of uh, unwarranted moral superiority. These behaviors of social justice warriors usually have a negative impact on the civil rights movement and actually turn people away and, and turn away potential allies 
and then fueling the resurgence of, of bigoted groups that, that come in and they scoop the people up that have been burned or turned off by social justice warriors. So you've got, you've got one group that's, that's going out there and uh, destroying these potential allies they could have, but then you have these radical groups to whichever direction you please that are coming in, and now, now they're gathering up these people who have been completely offended by those who are saying that they're, they're, they're fighting for civil rights and social justice. Psalm 64 reads, Hear my voice, O God, in my complaint. Preserve my life from dread of the enemy. Hide me from the secret plots of the wicked, from the throngs of evildoers who wet their tongues like swords, who aim bitter words like arrows, shooting from ambush at the blameless, hooting at him suddenly and without fear. They hold fast to their evil purpose. They talk of laying snares secretly, thinking, who can see them? They search out injustice, saying, We have accomplished a diligent search, for the inward mind and heart of a man are deep. But God shoots his arrow at them, and they are wounded suddenly. They are brought to ruin with their own tongues turned against them. All who see him, all who see them will wag their heads. Then all of mankind fears. They will tell God has brought about a ponder of what he has done. Let the righteous one rejoice in the Lord and take refuge in him. Let all who do upright in their heart exult. Now, I, I wanted to put that in there because even, even biblically, when the Psalms were being written, they were dealing with these same, same problems in their culture. You've got people that are wetting their tongues like swords and, and shooting bitter words like arrows. They're, they're shooting from ambush. They're, they're shooting from an anonymous state so that you don't know who they are. And they can't be blamed, but they're attacking these people with their words, and they're they're trying to strike fear into these individuals because they feel like they they have to do this as a social justice warrior, or they they feel like if if they could just rally enough support and and label this individual that they would be a hero. But we see right here that. All these people that are doing the exact same tactics that were done thousands of years ago are still happening now. It's not something new. I think we're just seeing a resurgence of this type of mentality, and now they've been given a platform from which they can gather support and they can rally against you. But one of the things we do have to keep in mind that these individuals they will have to answer for what they're doing eventually. Either here or, or when we enter the gates of heaven. Either way, they're going to have to answer for what they're doing. We know in our hearts what we're doing. God knows in our hearts what we're doing. I can only hope and pray that these people who are out here trying to establish a way to attack people for their points of view or trying to label somebody as something that they're not, that they will realize what they're doing and just stop, just cut it out. They'll find a way to just let it go. 
So that leads me into something else that's been coming up lately, and that would be uh, red flag laws. And I think this has been primarily pushed through the idea of having common sense gun control and and in an attempt to reduce gun violence. Um, so Wikipedia just said that a red flag law is a gun violence prevention law that permits police or family members to petition a state court to order a temporary removal of firearms from a person who may present a danger to themselves or others. Now, these red flag laws are enforced without due process. You can just go to your courthouse, file the petition. Cops will show up at that person's doorstep, strip them of their, their individual rights to own the firearm. The firearms are then seized. That person then has to go to court, has to petition the court, go through the cost of that, has to hire an attorney, has to fight for themselves to get their firearms back. And in the end, they're probably going to come to the conclusion that the cost that they're having to pay to just get them back is not even worth it. So the, they probably would just relinquish that, that, those firearms. But the problem is they've now relinquished their right to own that firearm without due process just because someone petitioned the court through the red flag law. So if you think about that, anyone who knows you personally could develop a case against you. And that person could submit a petition through the red flag law to the court without your consent and without your knowledge. This could be a crazy ex-girlfriend. It could be uh, a disgruntled neighbor. It could be um, a friend that you have a falling out with. It could be a family member even. I mean, there are five states that currently enforce red flag laws. And the, the scary thing is that Republican Senator Ted Cruz said in a U.S. Senate hearing on March 26, 2019, that he actually supports red flag gun confiscation and continues to show signs of, quote, bipartisan support. So now we've got people that supposedly are standing for the Constitution that are now saying that red flag laws are totally fine, they have nothing against that, and that it should be enforced. I mean, it's unfortunate to see, but this is, I mean, that's kind of why, you know, I might be losing some people right now, but I wanted to go through these things and just identify the, the, the big issues that I've seen that we're currently dealing with, just to give you some perspective of what's actually happening. And I think the, the final uh, component that I, that I see now is that Satan is waging a war on masculinity. And we've got laws that are being submitted into public school systems for curriculum that, if approved, it, it will take California teachers that teach kindergarten through, um, I think it's kindergarten through eighth grade, that there are 15 different genders. Now, I'm not sure where I fall on that, but the reality is kindergartners and elementary age students in, in the California public school systems could be taught to reject, you know, quote, gender stereotypes, uh, whether it be about clothing or certain colors or toys. 
and you and to accept transgenderism as a normative if proposed if if these health uh, guidelines are approved now the California elementary school teachers may be directed to teach transgender lessons and the um, the California State Board of Education is revamping its health education framework. Now, I, I found it from a couple different sources. I, I don't know if and when this is actually taking effect, but this is just something to keep in mind when you're considering what is happening in our public school system in and around uh, gender identity and specifically masculinity. So, did you know that the California Department of Education wants every public school for children as young as five to be taught that sex is assigned at birth and that gender is on a spectrum? Oh, sex is not assigned at birth and that gender is on a spectrum. So California State Board of Education is revamping the health education framework, and it's aligned with the California Healthy Youth Act. It's a, it's a law that could require sex education that includes lessons on gender identity, and the framework is scheduled to be adopted by the Board of Education by, it, it, the sources I found said 2019. There's no confirmation that's actually going to happen in 2019. It could be, could be next year. It could be five years from now. But these plans are being set in, set in motion, and it's only a matter of time before it, they get ratified or they get put into place and become law and become the new curriculum for the public school system. So, for example, uh, the framework tells teachers to talk about gender identity with kindergartners, and it notes that some kindergartners may be transgender. So here is an expert that I uh, excerpt that I found from the framework. So, uh, quote, while students may not fully understand the concept of gender expression and identity, some children in kindergarten and even younger have identified as transgender or understand they have a gender identity that is different from their sex assigned at birth. This may present itself in different ways, including the way they dress, their activity, their preferences, experimenting with dramatic play, and feeling uncomfortable self-identifying with their sex assigned at birth. However, gender nonconformity does not necessarily indicate that an individual is transgender, and all forms of gender expression should be respected, end quote. And I have another quote here that says, Discussing gender with kindergartners by exploring their gender stereotypes, asking open-ended questions such as, what are preferred colors, toys, and activities for boys and girls, and then challenging stereotypes if presented. And throughout the discussion, they are to show images of children around the same age who do not conform to typical gender stereotypes. Examples don't have to be exaggerated or overt. Simple references such as colors or toy preferences can demonstrate acceptance of gender nonconformity. It additionally recommends that teachers read a book called uh, the title is My Princess Boy by Cheryl Kilo Davis, and I, I googled it, and you could find what that boy, what that um, that book looks like, and it invites people from the community to be guest speakers, uh, including politicians or celebrities, um, 
or or individuals who share that same gender identity and they can use that as a teaching tool to teach children that you can be a princess boy or I'm sure there's going to be another book for the female to boy side of that. I'm not really sure how that's going to work, but I'm sure they will come up with something. So schools that are in transition, it's called a guide for supporting transgender students in K through 12 schools. And this is being sponsored by the national education association, the NEA, which is the nation's largest teachers union. So there's backing. I'm sure there's funding. These plans are being put in place, albeit they're probably not going to take place now, but I'm sure we're going to see over the next few years this type of transition to the 15 different genders, the education of, of gender identity, starting at kindergarten for public school systems. So if you have your children in the public school system, if you haven't already, you're probably going to start seeing this type of transition and, and teaching within the public school system. So I, I would highly encourage you to read up on this, stay involved in, in what your kids are learning at your public school system, and really just you got to stay on it. It's, it's fascinating to me that this has caught so much momentum and that it's something that is being it's a snowball that's being put in place, and honestly, it seems like everyone's just comfortable letting it happen. Uh, makes me a little uncomfortable. Um, so I definitely wanted to bring it to your attention. So I have here uh, a quote from C.S. Lewis, and it, it has to do with the this like progressive mindset. Uh, we we hear a lot of talk about uh, being, oh, you're progressive, or you have a progressive mindset, or your family's very progressive, and the way you're raising your, your, your boys and girls to be gender neutral, and it's very interesting, but this was taken from chapter five of C.S. Lewis's book called Mere Christianity, another great read. I would highly encourage you to get that book by C.S. Lewis, um, and it's, it's taken out of the section where it says, we have cause to be uneasy. And it goes on to say, we all want progress, but progress means getting nearer to the place where you want to be. And if you have taken a wrong turn, then to go forward does not get you any nearer. If you're on the wrong road, progress means doing an about turn and walking back to the right road. And in that case, the man who turns back soonest is the mo mo most progressive man. We all have seen this when doing arithmetic. When I have started a sum and, and the sum is wrong, the sooner I admit this and go back and start over again, the faster I shall get on. There is nothing progressive about being pig-headed and refusing to admit a mistake. And I think if you look at the present state of the world, it is pretty plain that humanity has been making some big mistakes. We are on the wrong road, and if that is so, we must go back. Going back is the quickest way on. End quote. 
So ultimately, I think we've come to a point when we've lived at the limit of this good enough life in a broken society. We feel like we've, we've reached the edge of the, the minimum life and that people are searching for something more in every possible idea, belief, self-help book, television show, celebrity spokespersons, excuse me, but we only know God can take us to the next stage in our life. And that leads me to Matthew 21, Jesus's triumphal entry. Now, it, it, it says from Matthew 21, when Jesus entered the city on Sunday, Palm Sunday, he was greeted by cheering crowds proclaiming him king, much to the dismay of religious leaders, Pontius Pilate, and the 10th the Roman legion who was uh, taking up residence at the Antonia Fortress on the opposite side of town, which was there to control the enormous amount of crowds that were, that were there during this, this Passover celebration in Israel. So at the time, the, the normal population of Jerusalem uh, would, was typically around 100,000 or so people. Now, during the Passover celebration, it, it swelled from 100,000 to over a million people in a matter of days. The Jewish unrest was rampant during the time of Jesus with numerous radical rebellions and uprisings occurring throughout, the Palest throughout Palestine. Uh, the northern territory of Galilee, which was Jesus' home, was actually a fountain of radical thought and revolutionary movement during the time in and around 32 AD. So when Jesus was entering the city on Passover with about a million frustrated Jews and the crowds loudly proclaiming him king, was, was a volatile situation. I mean, there was friction everywhere from all these different people, all walks of life, backgrounds were all just crammed in this one little area, and you can just tell, that, and you could feel the immense amount of tension that was there. The, the Jewish leaders who were shocked and outraged of Jesus' behavior uh, at the temple when he was chasing out the money changers, the Romans were actually on high alert because of the events surrounding Jesus in the city. So they knew of, of all the volatility that was already happening. They were gearing up for the tension because of the, the Passover celebration and the immense amount of people there. And then you have Jesus that's tossing tables and throwing people out uh, of the, the temple because they were selling animals and livestock and gambling and all sorts of things that just did not belong in the temple. Uh, and that, that leads me to the, the parable of the wedding feast in Matthew 22, verse 1 through 14. And it says, Again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they wouldn't come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who were invited, See, I prepared a dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his, seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite the wedding feast. Invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. 
In verse 10, And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And the king said to the attendants, Bind him, and, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. So the warning in these two parables, and why I thought it appropriate to add this to the podcast, is that if we don't continue to cultivate disciples in the correct way based on biblical truths, the rewards within the kingdom of God can be taken away from us and, and thus given to someone else. This is regardless of how big our church may be, how many members we have, how famous we are on TV, how many books we sell, or how many speaking engagements we book. We're all equal in the eyes of God and the Holy Spirit, and we can just as easily grieve the Holy Spirit in ways potentially detrimental to our relationship with Christ, which we will go into more detail in later discussions. But for the sake of today, just because we stand and say, I believe, during a church service doesn't ensure we'll inherit all that God has in store for us when we reach the kingdom of God. Yes, we are accepting Jesus as our personal Savior, and that is the, the first step. But the step that follows that is what we're doing for the kingdom after we said, I believe. It's so much more than just a relationship, but it's, it's the way we actually live out our lives for Jesus Christ and the way that we're being present in the Holy Spirit than it is just to say a couple of words and, you know, join a Bible study or a, a, a whatever group and show up and talk about your highs and lows for an hour and a half and then you all go home and without really reading much scripture at all. But my point in doing this podcast today was showing you how popular belief and, and mainstream culture can be, can be twisted and can be manipulated through the capitalization of fear and, and chaos, that when chaos is ensuing, you have to wonder what else is happening that we're not seeing. Because everyone's so focused on the chaos, everyone's so focused on the fear, that there could be so many things happening within our government, within our our, our friendship base within our local community that because of something chaotic is happening all the other stuff just gets pushed to the side but those things are still happening and people are taking advantage of those opportunities just like in an event of a natural disaster let's say we had a major earthquake here in southern california essentially you're going to be on your own unless you're at a major uh public place. If you're at a hospital, if you're at an airport or a port of entry, if you're at one of those major locations, that is where the focus is going to be because that is where the, the emergency responders are going to be traveling to first. If you're at your house and you're kind of out, kind of out of the way and you're not in a, in a major city like downtown Los Angeles or, or San Francisco, you're, you're going to be on your own for a little while. There, there's still going to be chaos happening around you. And 
you're going to have your own problems. You could have looters. You could have people coming to break into your house to, to kind of stake, take your stuff, take your friend's stuff. Those bad things are going to be happening around you, but the main source of chaos and focus is going to be in the major epicenters. Just like we saw in the Sand Creek Massacre and the events leading up to the Sand Creek Massacre, the individuals in power were taking advantage of the chaos that was happening within the country between the slave, between slavery, between the Civil War, between the, the, the secession of states from the Union, that they took that opportunity amidst the chaos and amidst the, the transition between two presidents to essentially rob the Native tribes of their land, take their natural resources, disarm them, and put them in a place, you know, a reservation, if you would, for the sense of peace and protecting the community, and someone then took advantage of that opportunity. What I want you to see from this podcast, and what I hope I'm, I'm articulating clearly, is that we have to be wary of the chaos that's happening within our current culture. We've got people that make up the minority, but they often scream the loudest, and those are the ones that are heard. But you also have to keep in mind that just because some of these groups that are speaking loudly are drawing a lot of attention, or we have school shootings, or we have public shootings that are, that are drawing a lot of attention by the media and, and by our, our, our culture, you have to wonder what else is happening that we're not seeing because everything is becoming the epicenter of the media at that moment. So I think in closing tonight, I, I wanted to read for you guys out of Matthew chapter 27. If you have your Bibles, I would love if you want to read along with me. I'm going to read the whole chapter um, because... I think this speaks directly to the heart of what I'm trying to get to tonight, and that's that public opinion can be swayed based on fear and based on hysteria, and in the midst of that fear and hysteria, bad decisions are made, people's lives are lost, and irreparable damage can be done without people processing through what else is going on behind the scenes or what else is going on that we're not seeing because the epicenter of chaos is distracting us. So I'm going to go ahead and read from Matthew chapter 27, and I'd love if you would read along with me. I'm reading from the King James Version. I prefer the King James Version, but if you have your other translations, uh, that'll be just fine. When the morning was come, all the chief priests and elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Then Judas, which had betrayed him, when he saw that he was condemned, repented himself and brought again the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned in that I have betrayed the innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? See thou to that. And he cast down the pieces of silver in the temple 
and departed and went and hung himself. And the chief priest took the silver pieces and said, It is not lawful for, for two to put them into the treasury because it is the price of blood. And they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. Wherefore that field was called the field of blood unto this day. Then was filled that which was spoken what then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremy the prophet, saying, Jeremiah the prophet, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, and the price of him that was valued, whom they of children of Israel did value, and gave them for the potter's field as the Lord appointed me. And Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, Art thou the king of the Jews? And Jesus said unto him, Thou sayest. And when he was accused of the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. Then said Pilate unto him, Hearest thou not how many things they witness against thee? And he answered him to never a word, insomuch that the governor marveled greatly. Now at least, now at the feast, the governor was wont to release unto the people a prisoner whom they would, and had then a notable prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, when they gathered together, Pilate said unto them, Who will ye that I release unto you, Barabbas or Jesus, is called, that which is called Christ? For he knew that the, for the envy they would, had delivered him. When he was set down on the judgment seat, his wife said unto him, <clears throat> His said unto him, saying, Have thou nothing to do with just a man, for I have suffered many things this day in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitude that they should ask Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said unto them, Whether of the twain will ye that I release unto you, said, they said Barabbas. Pilate saith unto them, What shall I do then with Jesus, which is called Christ? They say unto him, Let him be crucified. And the governor said, Why? What evil hath he done? But he cried out the more, saying, Let him but they cried out the more, saying, Let him be crucified. When Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing, but that rather the tumult was made, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of a just person, see ye to it. Then answered all the people and said, his blood be on us and our children. Then he, they released Barabbas unto them, and he had scourged Jesus. He delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the common hall and gathered unto him the whole band of soldiers. And they stripped him and put on his scarlet robe. And when they had plaited a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head and a reed in his right hand, and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit upon him and took the reed and smote him on the head. And after that they had mocked him, they took the robe off of him and put his own raiment on him and led him away to crucify him. <clears throat> and as they came out, they found a man of Serene, Simon by the name, him they compelled to bear his cross. And when they were come unto the place called Golgotha, that is to say, a place of a skull, they gave him vinegar to drink mingled with gall, and when he had tasted thereof, he would not drink. And they crucified him and parted his garments, 
casting lots, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. They parted my garments among them, and and upon my vesture did they cast lots. And sitting down, they watched him there, and set up over his head his accusation written, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then were there two thieves crucified with him, one on the right hand and one on the other, and they that passed, and they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads, and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple, and buildest it in three days, save thyself. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priests mocked him, with the scribes and elders, said, He saved others, he can't save himself. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross, and he will be believed. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. The thieves also which were crucified with him cast the same in his teeth. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness all over the land unto the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, Lama Sabachthani, that is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Some of them that stood there when they heard that said, this man calleth for Elias. And straightway one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. The rest said, let be, let us see whether Elias will come to save him. Jesus, when he cried again with a loud voice, yelped up the ghost, yielded up the ghost. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent with twain, rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake and the rocks rent. And the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose, and came out of the graves after his resurrection, and went into the holy city and appeared unto many. Now when the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying, Truly this was the Son of God. And many, many, many women were, be, were there beholding afar off, which followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering unto him, among which was Mary Magdalene and Mary, mother of James and, Joseph, and Jesus, uh, and the mother of Zebedee's children. When even, when the even was come, there came a rich man of Arimathea named Joseph, who also himself was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and begged for the body of Jesus, and then Pilate commanded the body be delivered. And when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in clean linen cloth and laid it down in his, in his own tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock, and he rolled a great stone over the door of the sepulchre and departed. And there was Mary Magdalene and the other Mary sitting over against the sepulcher. Now the next day that followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees came together unto Pilate, saying, Sir, remember that 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 deceiver said, while he was yet alive, after three days he will rise again. Command, therefore, that the sepulcher be made sure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say unto the people, He has risen from the dead. So the last error shall be worse than the first. Pilate said unto them, Ye have a watch. Go your way and make sure it is as ye can. 
So they went and made the sepulcher sure, sealing the stone and setting a watch. So I put this in here because it, it goes along with the theme of in moments of fear and chaos and hysteria, we make decisions that are life-altering, that are in most cases irrevocable. Now in this case in Matthew 27, it's the story of Jesus being crucified. But I'm primarily focused on the crowd and the demands that they had upon Pontius Pilate of demanding that Barabbas be released and Jesus be crucified. Now, no one really knew why Jesus was there, except that they were afraid of who he was, and because of that fear, they demanded that he be put to death. There was something so different about Jesus that it almost was demanded by the populace to remove him from the planet. And it was done successfully. And it was done by popular vote. It was done by popular demand. And, and the mentality and ideology of the people at the time, the same people who days prior had welcomed Jesus into the, the city as the king of kings and lord of lords, was ultimately swayed within a matter of, of hours to crucify an individual who had done nothing wrong. So I, I hope that this broadcast was clear. I hope it, it brought some new perspectives to your outlook of, of the culture and the cultural mindset and the, the morality shift that we're dealing with and how we're seeing that popular opinion based on fear and, and based on um, moments of chaos lead to making awful decisions. But in the midst of these awful decisions, we have to remember that something else could also be happening simultaneously that we're not aware of because our attention is being drawn to the, the next outrage, the next, the next um, shooting, the next tragedy, the next natural disaster. There's always going to be something fighting for your attention. And the things that, that give us the most fear and are the most explosive will always draw the most attention because that's what our current culture feeds off of. So in the midst of all that chaos, we have to be mindful to take a step back and remove ourselves from what's actually happening and keep a weather eye on the horizon to see what else is happening at the same time. Because it might be something that is not being talked about, and it might be something that could direct, directly affect you, your rights, your liberties, your freedoms, 
but you don't know what's happening until it's too late. Just like Sand Creek, just like these red flag laws, just like what happened when Jesus was put on the cross. We have to be mindful of what's happening. And that's all I've got for this evening. I hope you guys enjoy the podcast. Thanks for listening. If you want to follow along, go ahead and hit that subscribe button and uh, check out our podcast. And if you want to learn more about the ministry that I'm involved with, Peleus, you can visit Peleus.com. That's P-A-L-A-E-U-S.com. Learn more about uh, my ministry, what about what we're doing, what the things that we're fighting for, how we're trying to equip men, and how we're trying to build spiritual toughness in men so that we can start, I don't think we'd be able to turn back the, the dial on some of the things that are happening, but at least slow down this, this rapid progression of, of ideology so that we can slow down and process through what's actually happening and how we can fix these things. I think it starts at, at the individual level with men, especially men at home, with families, with their kids, and raising individuals to be aware of these things and how history and scripture and our current culture all correlate and all have context that can help us make better decisions and help remove some of that fear and some of that hysteria from the cultural mindset that we are being um, presented with every day. So in closing out tonight, I just want to close in prayer. Father God, we are just so grateful for all that you do, for the way that you're present in all of our lives. And Holy Spirit, we are we're in awe of your wonder. We're in awe of the way that you have come into our life, the way that you have transformed us, and the way that you are guiding us towards your kingdom. We ask for your continued guidance. We ask for your continued blessing, that you would continue to lead us on the right path, that you would give us the opportunity to fight for what we believe in, to fight for what's right, and to not relinquish territory to Satan. We ask for your continued strength. Give us the ability to stay focused on Scripture, to stay focused on you, and to use you as a filter through which all things pass through. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we forgive those who have debts against us. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. Forever and ever, your name be praised. The Lord of heaven's armies, the King of glory, Yahweh. Amen.
Watchmen, thanks again for tuning into the broadcast. If you didn't hate it, go hit that subscribe button. You can check out our website at Peleus.com. That's Peleus, P-A-L-A-E-U-S.com. We'll see you next time. And remember, come one, come all. Together stand tall. For the Lord rejoices in uprightness. <laughs>